Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We have a special Strokes of Genius edition. Um, as you likely, hopefully know, Strokes of Genius is the Feder Nadal documentary that will air on the BBC and on Tennis Channel the night before Wimbledon. That is this Sunday, July 1st at 8 p.m. And this uses the Wimbledon final in 2008 to really talk about this, this remarkable rivalry that... Uh, persists and uh 10 years after that match Federer Nadal come to Wimbledon as one two in the rankings having alternated winning the last six majors that's remarkable Jamie um our guest today to discuss this is Ted Robinson Ted is a dear friend he is also a treasured sports announcer um prominent hall of fame career he is called team sports baseball hockey basketball he now calls games for the San Francisco 49ers. He works for NBC Olympics, and he also does quite a bit of tennis. He called the 2008 final with John McEnroe, working for NBC, as he did at Wimbledon for a dozen years, um, at least. He uh, now works for Tennis Channel, and I have the good fortune of calling him not just a friend, but a colleague as well. So Ted, uh, who called that match, talks about some of his remembrances, some of his memories, um, some behind the curtains, as it were, stories. And Ted is a great voice in the Strokes of Genius documentary. And we spend the next, uh, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes talking Federer Nadal. So here he is, Ted Robinson. As one of the few people who literally was court level that day, who better to talk to? When you're calling matches on center court, explain where exactly you are positioned. So any. Um, Wimbledon center court match you see there are in, in opposite corners uh, and I don't know north, south, east, west from center court. I'm not good at that. But in opposite corners there are these glassed in booths and they literally are glassed in 
the one that is directly beneath where the player families sit is the or was for 40 years or so the NBC booth. And it was, in my view, I always referred to it as the cockpit. You felt like you were a pilot climbing into the cockpit of a plane. And once you're in there, you can't move. And we physically had to walk behind, I think it was about three people that were running the scoreboard, the corner scoreboard on the, on the court at center court. We literally had to climb over their backs to get from the, you know, from the doorway in scoreboard control to this little cockpit booth that was NBC's. Uh, they had glass up in front of us so that uh, players could never hear us talk. But we were always conscious of the fact that we were on camera. We were often told by the club, please don't have Diet Coke cans or, or bottled water from someone other than the official Wimbledon sponsor could not be on the windowsill because those were visible on camera. And then, of course, that you know, became in play multiple times. Uh, most notably was my first Wimbledon for NBC, which was 2000, which was Venus Williams' breakthrough. Right. And when Richard Williams danced literally on our heads. I was calling the match with Chris Evert. And when Venus won and Richard did his famous stood up on that rooftop and danced, that was pounding on our heads. And I did not know at first what was happening until maybe two to three seconds passed. And I looked at our monitor and saw he's jumping on our head. And, you know, you start fearing that, uh, that the roof was going to fall in, which it didn't. But then it fast forwards all the way through to, uh, this famous 2008 match when Rafa finally wins in the darkness and he climbed up right right in front of us. I mean, he was literally climbing on the glass with his soles of his shoes in my face to get up and you know get into that same player box. You you know who uh you know who helped hoist him up when he went no, to go I didn't catch that. Robert Federer extends an arm and uh helps the guy who just beat his son 8-6 in the 5th set to win Wimbledon and take over the number one ranking. And Roger Federer's father um, is, is one of the guys who extends an arm to help Rafa Nadal get to his box. Always love that scene. <laughs> and, John, isn't that it's, – it's changed now, but isn't that still a great sight whenever we see the, the, the clips and strokes of genius or other clips of, the, of that match to see the incredible intensity of the match personified in the player box when they were still sitting – the Federer camp in the front row and the Nadal camp in the back row. And, you know, when, when, when Rafa breaks for eight, seven in the fifth and his father is just in a pinstripe suit (laughs) is up, is, is up and just being so ecstatic. And you can see the glumness on the face of Mirka and, 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 uh, and uh, Roger's mother and father in the front row. That, that's just such an extraordinary dynamic that I know they've changed. But when I, go back and I, and I know we both caught this that once Rafa does get into the player box and now he's embracing his family uh Robert Federer is clapping. Yeah, exactly. Robert Federer exactly. Is exactly. And that's that's just that's just such a great measure of of these two people and what they created with this rivalry. I I mean, you know, we should add too that I think now there's basically a little gang play. I mean, there's a stairway, but it, the boxes are still next to each other. I I always say that when my kids play t-ball you'd never want to be on the same side of the backstop as you know if you were kids around the tigers you'd never wanted to be with the lions parents and here here are these two guys in the the wimbledon final this global sporting event and literally it's one team in one row and the next team and they're like two rows on an airplane and they're sitting sitting right behind each other um 
what what uh we're 10 years in which is at some level the conceit for the film but really this is more a, a meditation on the rivalry and if you gave us both truth serum i think we'd both say that this this wimbledon match um is sort of a, a vehicle to do it but really this is as much about the rivalry as it is that wimbledon final in 2008 but what, what do you remember about that that day Oh gosh, what do I remember? I remember so many things about that day, and and I know we've talked many times, John, including ten years ago when you called me to, when you were doing this great job on Strokes of Genius, the book, and trying to remember. Uh, I'm not the tennis savant, and we both know them and work with many of them who can remember every stroke on every point right. of a match ten years later, and I'm not wired that way. Uh, it's much more atmosphere to me and and vibe, and. Um, you know, I just, I, so many quick things here and I won't um, belabor the point, but, uh, from that day, for some reason we were allowed, and I think John McEnroe pursued this for NBC. We taped the opening to breakfast at Wimbledon inside the doors, right in front of the board where the champions names are listed. Uh, and it's the one and only time in my life I have and likely ever will be in there and standing there. And the club allowed us at maybe 10 minutes to two to tape our opening to breakfast at Wimbledon there, which was an extraordinary and, and how telling and how fitting was that it was on this day that that happened. It was, you know, as if we expected that kind of match to happen. Um, you do, know, do you think that's what it was? Delays. I'm sorry. John? I mean, why, do you think that's what it was? Why, why would they have let you do that? Just it's they, they knew that this was an historic match. I, I well, I think we, it was the third straight year. Okay. And, so we, we, I mean, it's the third straight year for Roger and Rafa to play in the finals. And as everyone remembers, 2006 was pretty much Roger's match. 2007, Rafa pushes him to five sets. Right. Roger wins it decisively, but still fifth set. And now 2008, Rafa's won four straight French Opens. He just crushed Roger a few weeks earlier in the Paris final. So suddenly, you know, you have an idea and, and I've always felt this, and I'm a New York City kid from my youth, so to me this is, maybe to borrow a Broadway phrase, this is Southwest Side Story to me. It was a turf war. I always, And that's the way I always felt this. This was turf. And Rafa had staked his turf, and Roger had his. And Roger had had four chances to beat Rafa on his turf. Semis in 05 and then three straight finals. You mean Clay? And he had failed Clay. in all of them. He had failed in all of them. Right. And Rafa had had two shots at Wimbledon and had gotten closer in the second one. So I think there was that anticipation that could someone finally beat the other guy and steal his turf, and was this going to be the year that Rafa could do it on grass? So the match starts, and Nadal storms out. And, I mean, the, the first, the very first point of the match is one of the most ridiculous points uh, you'll, you'll ever see. <laughs> Um, you talk about foreshadowing, but the match go, you know, Nadal wins the first two sets, Federer storms back, staves off match point. I'm curious from where you're sitting, which is literally on the court. How do you call a match like this? Uh, so that's John, that's a, a pretty perceptive question because, uh, this fuels back to a line I was taught in 1987, probably when I first, um, was given the opportunity to call tennis and I was a young ball sport announcer. I was a baseball guy right. and football and I had not been exposed to tennis very much in my life. And a very, uh, at the time, a guy who was a fairly prominent agent in tennis said to me, look, 
tennis is the one sport you can't go wrong saying nothing. And it's the best one line of advice I've ever received in broadcasting, and I've never forgotten it about tennis. And so that played into this match. And it's something that I, I'm very proud of. I'm very proud of my partnership with John McEnroe in that sense, that this was the most prominent match where it happened. But there were others where when the match was this good and the players were that uh, strong and the stakes were that high, you don't need commentary. You're simply captioning a few pictures. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was with Mary, in fact, Carrillo, uh, when we did the, the great Venus Williams-Lindsay uh, final in 2005, which is the best women's match I ever called at Wimbledon. Um, same thing. Third set. Don't need to say very much. So th- I really was very proud of the fifth set of that because John, of all people, understood how good this was and how special it was. And we didn't say very much. The pictures told virtually everything. Did you have any lines stored up? Did you have any, you know, I, I, I don't know how you, you don't obviously, you know, we, one of the beauties of sports is we don't know the outcome. Nothing is scripted in advance, but we do know there will be a winner of this classic match. And if Federer wins, it will mean something very significant. If Nadal wins, it means something very significant yet different. How do you prepare for the ending? Yeah, you know, I that one I had nothing prepared for. Um, I, I don't believe in scripted lines. I know others may differ with that. Um, I've heard stories through the years of other people in, in our profession that feel differently. Um, I called a few moments. I had something ready, uh, a phrase ready when Pete Sampras won his record-breaking Wimbledon, which was my first year doing it. Um, and it was just one short-clipped phrase. Uh, Barry Bonds hit his 500th home run. I called that. And Wait, what, what, what were, now I'm guess, curious. What, uh, what were they? Uh, well, Pete, I, like I said, he's the, the grandest champion. And because that was when he broke Emerson's record. Right. Uh, Barry Bonds hit his 500th home run, which turned out at the time, to, you know, we had no idea he was going to go on and hit 260 yeah, something right, more. Right. But, but at the time, 500 was still a magical number in baseball. And to me, it was a significant moment for San Francisco. So I just said to myself, if I call it, whatever I say, it's going to involve the, San, the words San Francisco. And so I did. I incorporated that into the call of the flight of the ball. But anyway, this didn't have that sort of historical significance in terms of milestones, numbers. Um, and I'll be honest, John, the, the other thing I, you ask about memories of the match, the other thing I remember vividly, and it was one of those moments that at the time – you don't really grasp it, but later on I understood the significance was the, the fifth set rain delay, the two-all rain delay. You know, at this time it's 8 o'clock at night. We've been on the air for six hours live and very few breaks. I had one about two-and-a-half-minute bathroom break in the seven-and-a-half hours that we were on the air. Um, but this uh, during this fifth set rain delay at two-all, and I remember we, you know, we suspected it was going to be quick, but we were still concerned about remaining light, the word came in my ear from our producer, John McGinnis, that dropped the window in front of us and the camera behind the baseline swung around and the word came from Dick Eversall in New York, you and John talk. (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) You and John just talked. So we did. We did talking head television for I don't know how many minutes during that two-all rain delay in the fifth set. And the, the, the compliment of it was, of course, that, you know, I was 
there because I could tee up John. We, I think, have a very comfortable professional relationship and that uh, the conversation with with John leading the way was going to be better than any fill we could run from back in uh, New York or studios or commercials. So that part of it was that was memorable to me was that for 10 minutes or so on, you know, one of the biggest events in sports, they just said, you guys just talk and make it up as you go along. And so, you know, my 25 years as a baseball announcer came into play because I had done multiple rain delays. I was going to say, this sounds like uh, right. This sounds like the Shea stadium rain delay where we don't know when the tarps are going to come off the field. (laughs) So that was, and it was a compliment. And again, you know, John and I are, as you know, John McEnroe and I have, uh, developed a very, very, I think, a very strong friendship over the years, and it shows on the air. And that was a compliment to that, was that, you know, someone as great in our business as Dick Ebersol understood, you guys can handle it for, you know, we weren't going to do an hour and a half of it, but for 10 minutes, you guys could just talk, try to put this thing in perspective. What are we seeing? And if they get back out here and play tonight, where the heck is this going to go? Right, right. Um, when you're positioned where you are, and again, I'm, I feel like we need a visual aid, the, the podcast is a, a great audio medium, but sometimes we uh, run into problems like this. I wish we had uh, a visual compliment. But when you're in this, what do you call it? The, the terrarium? What do you? What do you oh, the pilot seat. Um, the co- but co- what? What are you picking? I mean, I can't imagine this in any other sport. I guess you know, ringside and boxing, maybe. But you're literally on the playing surface. I mean, what? What are you picking up from that vantage yeah. point? And and specific to that day, what? What did you pick up? Literally being at, at eye level to the two participants. Yeah, and, and John, it's very similar to what used to happen in the NBA and college basketball. Now it doesn't happen very often in the NBA, from what I'm told, anymore. But for years, when I was an NBA announcer, young, you're sitting on the court for every game. Therefore, you heard everything. You heard all the banter. You heard the coaches and the officials bantering with each other. You could hear the players giving grief to each other. Um, and you saw every facial reaction. You saw it up close. You understood the emotions that everyone was dealing with in its moment. Uh, and that's the, the closest analogy I can give you to what that experience was like at Wimbledon. Because of the glass in front of us, you don't hear everything. But when Andy Murray, in his young years, would get out there and the matches became so much more important for him, and you would hear his you know, tirades on court. You know, we would literally hear them, even with headsets on. I could hear exactly what he was saying. Um, you saw which players were incredibly connected to their teams, whether it's their coaches, their families. You know, Justine Ennin, we, we all saw as great a player as she was, uh, never won Wimbledon, but, you know, she was constantly looking up. I mean, right, every point right. she would be looking up at her coach. You know, do I challenge? Where do I serve? What do I do? It was just uh, – it was clearly a, a – a, you know, it was it was emotional support, no question. That that coach was uh, over the, your head, thing, but exactly because they were looking right over. Exactly, they were looking right over, directly over our heads on every one of these points. And of course, it was always the player that was at our end of the court that was involved with this. And then the other thing, John, which I, I've I've used this quite a bit, and I will take this to my grave. It's my greatest uh, point about Roger at Wimbledon was I never heard him. He was the quietest player that I ever heard, as crazy as that line sounds, at Wimbledon. Because where we were, we literally could hear their presence on the court. And someone like Andy Roddick, who was a brilliant Wimbledon player and had all these great runs there, but Andy was a big, strong, heavy-legged player. 
and you physically heard him. Right. He pounded right. even on the grass court. Um, Rafa has very much that same way. He moves, you know, clearly moves a little bit better than Andy, but same way. Roger glides, and you just would, you would never hear him. Not only did he not grunt or you know, rarely ever make a sound, <laughs> verbal sound, you never heard his legs. And I, those of us of age can remember having air hockey games when we were kids where there was a little thin film of air that hovered above the surface and the disc would glide along the top of the surface because of that film of air. Oh, I like That's that. what Roger That's was great. like. great. It was like he was playing on an air hockey field. And I've never, in you know, all the years of doing this, and I trust I never will see anybody else like that. Seen, not heard. It's like uh, it's like nineteenth century children. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. What uh, you know, you've Ted, you've called Super Bowls and NCAA tournament games, and as, as you say, came and, and you know, you should, we should probably talk a bit about how you you got to tennis in the first place. Um, but where where does this match rank in your sort of personal? pantheon of games you've you've called yeah it's it's the best sporting event i've ever called and this I, match i called one soup i called one super bowl it was for um san francisco 49ers radio so it wasn't joe buck or al michaels but um you know it was still a super bowl and um 11 olympics and a bunch of gold medal matches um you know i just i've been lucky to call a lot of great stuff but there's nothing there's just nothing and and because of the roof at center court, this can never happen again. And I think that's what makes this anniversary special. It's what makes your book relevant, John, the film based on the book relevant. is because this can't happen again. The combination of everything, the, the, the players, where they were, they were still you know, clearly young. And Roger had already arrived at this point, even though he hadn't won the French yet. He had proven he was basically the second best clay court player. Uh, Rafa was on the rise. It's the greatest stage in the sport, and the atmosphere with the rain delays, the on and off, can't happen again. And there's no other. I mean, there's well, actually, the Super Bowl I called, we did have a power outage, so I'm. That's I'm right. It can't yeah, happen yeah. in any other sport. Well, actually, it does, but uh, it's not supposed to happen in any other sport. You don't have, um, you know, you don't really have that. I guess the game seven of the Cubs Indians World Series, they did have a rain delay too. So. Um, but but the the on and off, you know, first of all, it was a delayed start by, what, 25 minutes to right. that match. Right. Uh, and then the two rain delays in the midst of, and as you said, the players walking off the court. You see them in the film. You see them walking up the staircase, one right behind the other, in, you know, in the fierce rivalry in the midst of this intense match. Uh, and, and then they have to come back out at 8.15 and eventually finish in darkness. And I... I you know, I know both of them have admitted in interviews since that it was basically really too dark to play. Right. But it was, and I think I've always credited Roger for this too, was, you know, as much as he may be frustrated internally about the ending, it was the right thing. There needed to be an ending that night. Now, they couldn't have played, I think you agree, John, they probably couldn't have played, I don't know if they could have played two more games. No, if that Rafa was that was the last. Had, that was the last game. I mean, if if that if yeah, that if had, had somehow gone to eight eight, right. come back tomorrow, boys. Right, exactly. If, if Rafa hadn't broken for eight seven, then I think you're right. If it's eight eight, or if Roger somehow breaks back for eight all, then that's it. Right. And that would have been, and and I went through this in two thousand one with the Raptor Ivanisevich Monday final, which was an entire match, but it's an immense cost. It's an immense cost to come back on that extra day. 
And so to do to have the chance to do that to play two games, which right. could have been, uh, <laughs> it was the right thing to have an ending as as crazy as it was. It was right to have it that night. What um, so after the match, Federer is physically exhausted. Nadal and and spiritually exhausted too. N- Nadal as well. What about you? I mean, you're you're sitting there and you're. <laughs> You, you got a, a two-minute bathroom break over seven hours, and you've called this epic sporting event. How, how do you do after after a day like this? Yeah, that's another that's another lingering memory, John. And uh, we uh, well, we were live, and of course on NBC, we were way beyond the allotted time, which didn't matter. This was so significant. Whatever was on behind NBC on the network, and I couldn't remember for the life of me, but that played second chair but i know we didn't stay on very long we did the interviews and it's a, a actually there's a clip of it in in the film where where john is just off the doors and he gets roger first and then rafa and then we wrapped it up and we were off the air pretty quick and it was sunday night at 9 30 or 9 40 in london and everybody's flying out monday morning everybody's right. flying home right <laughs> so so we go back to our hotel and, and no one lingered very long because it was such exhaustion. We, we get our uh, rides back to our hotel, which was 15, 20 minutes away. And we get back to our hotel at 10 or 10, 15. And they've already they've basically closed the hotel bar and restaurant. So, so we begged them, please stay open. We're, you know, 10 of us are going to come back down here and we need sandwiches and, and a beer, or glass of wine, whatever. So they agree to do that. We go upstairs, drop our bags, and now the adrenaline is just worn off and you're, you're about ready to collapse. The phone rings in my room. I pick it up. It's John McEnroe. And he says, uh, come to my room before we get downstairs. So I go bang on his door, and he opens it up, and he hands me a John Love's special brew. It's a London-only beer. And he cracks one. We sit down, and he just looks at me. And within you know, a couple of minutes, we didn't say much because we'd been on together for seven and a half hours. But he just looked at me, and he says, we'll never see anything like that again. And that's when the enormity really hits. When John McEnroe tells right. you that in a one-on-one setting, and of course, you know, I hope he's not mad at me for sharing it, but it was, it was, it, to me, it was a measure. When John says that, of all people, John, who played Borg, and when he tells you that, you understand that we saw something that we will never. And, and again, because of the roof, it's nobody's fault. We just can never totally replicate that night. You, you mentioned uh, John and Borg. In, any concern that this match, you, you talk about a turf war and the implications this had, and Federer then had gone three majors without a title in, in 2008. Were, were you at all concerned that this was going to dent Federer so severely this was going to uh, be a knockout blow? Well, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, John. I, this match was one of those that fall into the category where once you got to the fifth set, you know, it's it's not about analytics. It's not about stats. It's not about numbers. It's right. about tennis. And I think that was really the case. Now comes the but. When you look back afterwards, there was one glaring number to me, and it was something that became a pattern. And in that match, in that great Wimbledon final, Roger Federer had 13 break points against Rafa. He broke them once. He was one for 13 in break points. Now, just remember, we're talking about Rafa Nadal, not a big server, you know, and the, and Rafa Nadal served 30 games in that final, 
and he was broken once. once yeah. That's so, right. I mean, that, and there was a pattern. If you go back over several years, the, the, the best final that Roger ever played against Rafa at Roland Garros, the most competitive final, was the 2007. It went four sets, and Roger was in it. But in that match, he was one for 17. It's 17 break points against Rafa, broken once. And that's where I started to think, and I think many began to wonder about this, the, the, the matchup, the head-to-head matchup, which clearly is not one that favors Roger. And that really, to me, it started to tilt because when two guys are that good, the margins are that thin, and so it's going to be a handful of points every match that determine things. And when you go at the Wimbledon final, if you're Roger and you've won Wimbledon five straight times, you know, you don't think you're going to break Andy Roddick a whole lot. You don't think you're going to break Goran Ivanovic a whole lot. But Robin, right. sir, you think I got a shot to break him a couple of times? You break him once in thirty games in a, so, in a nine-seven uh, fifth. I mean, I you know, I went. Yeah. I've seen this match, whatever, half a dozen times at least. I I will say to Nadal's credit, a lot of times this was incredibly clutch serving. Even you know, yeah. se- second serve aces, and there were a couple of just r- ridiculous points he played down break point. To, to stave off break point that he played. It wasn't as though Federer stood up to the line with holding break point and, you know, f- forgot to hit the ball in the court. Um, but no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the other thing uh, I think people forget is that Federer then lost at the Olympics. You know, he, he went to China and lost in the Olympics, did not medal in singles, won a doubles medal with Vavrinka, which ended up being, I think, very significant in retrospect. But Federer won the U.S. Open in 2008. So here we think he's lost this turf war to Nadal, and he's got, you know, he lost the Australian Open to Djokovic, got crushed at the French Open, and then he loses this heartbreak classic 9-7 in the fifth match, and then he wins the fourth major of the year. Um, so, I mean, to, to me, one of the nice things about this, this rivalry, but this match especially, is that it was maybe the high point of the rivalry, but it was hardly uh, a, a fatal blow, and, and here we are, Ten years on, and this is—they—they've both won, whatever it is, combined more than twenty majors since. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you're right, John. And where I think maybe where I was heading in in the point was that that Wimbledon match to me probably began—it was probably the crest of where the thing tipped in where the head-to-head tipped. Ah, in yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and and I think from there on. I think Rafa was in Roger's head. I, I really believe that, and I obviously can't prove it. But I don't. To me, he was in Roger's head, and the, and we understand the matchup again was just it's sport, and it's it's one of the things I've always railed against in the measure. And I know it's a barroom argument, so it's not rational to begin with. But when people say who's the greatest of all time, well, how can you? This line went around for a while. How can Roger be the greatest of all time? He's not the greatest of his time. Right, because he, right, he's right. you know because well, I, and just that argument to me is just not, doesn't hold up at all. I mean, sport is filled; the history of sport is filled with matchups that don't work. Right, and this matchup has never worked for Roger until the last couple of years. And if it's the the bigger racket and the backhand improvement, you know I, that seems to be the measure. But um, the the matchup has just all and obviously on clay, every matchup favors Rafa, but particularly on clay. So. When it tipped in Rafa's favor, yeah, I wondered how Roger was going to come back. And now Roger's won the last five. And and I suspect that we will never see Roger and Rafa play on clay again. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing that deep inside, 
you know, Roger's okay with that. Right. Because I don't, I don't know if we'll see Roger play anyone. Yeah, Roger may have played his right. last clay match, period. But uh... Right. And, saying, he, and, and look, if I'm, and I don't hold that against Federer at all. He oh. took his best shots at Rafa. He right. had five shots at him in Paris. And this is when Roger was at his prime. Right. He no, took he his best six. shots at him. He yeah. couldn't do it. That's okay. Right. Now you figure exactly. that out. Hey, this is his place. He owns this place, but I've got every place else. Right. Um, you've seen the film, right? I have, yes. There, there was one line where, where Federer says, what I, what I think people intuited, but I don't think he had ever s- come out and said it before, where he basically said, listen, I didn't like the concept of a rival. I, I wanted to uh, rule the roost, and it took me a long time to warm up to this new dynamic, this new relationship. And finally, I convinced myself, you know what, I'll make some adjustments. And I, I think his exact quote was like, let's go. I mean, sort of let's get it on. But um, I, I think some of this was just temperamentally Federer's not the kind of guy who necessarily warmed to rivalry. He liked things. It was nice to be the king. And uh, I, I like it a lot more when there's a player on the other side of the net saying, Roger's too good, Roger's a great guy. And it took him a while, I think, to warm up to this whole idea of, I need to reassess my relationship with this guy and really look at this as, as a rivalry and not just another colleague I have to be. John, you just hit, that was the one moment of the film watching it um in advance here where my jaw dropped because i had never heard that before and uh you know all the great work you've did done with the book and with this film that's to me that's the nugget in an hour and 45 minute film that you take away was roger admitting that and i thought it was again incredibly uh candid and heartfelt by roger to admit that and it really does lead to I mean, look, how, how there's, a, there's a substantial part, and, and I, I don't want to be a spoiler here for folks who haven't seen the film yet, but there is a nice part of the film where John McEnroe talks about the importance of board to him. Right, right, right. And, right. and again, over my years, with 25 years with John, I've heard this a lot from John in private conversation, so I know it's sincere. And, and you know, I know Pete Sampras and, and I think and Andre have a little bit of that, too. They understand the importance of each other in terms of a rival. And now the fact that Roger candidly admitted, I get it. It was good for me to have. Yeah, wow. exactly. Exactly. That, uh, you know, I think Martina said it really well too, where she said, listen, and at the time this person's taking food off my table, but in retrospect, this sustained me, this prolonged my career. And ultimately I'm, I'm better off for having had this person in my life. Chrissy, John, look, Chrissy, we just case. lived yeah, we just lived through a French Open that, to me, was not terribly compelling. And I'm sad to say that because I love the sport. I love the event. But the men's French Open was not very compelling at all because Rafa's kicking everybody's tail again. And that's no fun. The only people that like that are Rafa fans. Um, it's, it's not good for it, the sport. And it's not Rafa's fault. I go to great pains, although Rafa fans hate me for saying this. I go to great pains. It's not his fault, but it's just not good. And that's what why Rafa it's again it's what made this match great was here was Rafa standing up on the other guy's turf yeah, saying, right, hey, right. I can take you I can take, take down you time. here too. Right. Yeah, that's exactly. what makes that's why this lives on. And sadly it's why none of the Roger Rafa matches from the French live on. None of them because they weren't terribly competitive. Um let me ask you one personal question and then we can close with a little Wimbledon talk. But you've Came up in, in, in hockey and baseball and Golden State Warriors, and now you do the 49ers, and people know you from Pac-12 Network. The Olympics, those are all much different sports than tennis. 
team versus individual and clocks and no clocks. What, what um what is it about tennis that appeals to you? I don't, I don't know. The, I, we, you and I, for as often as we've spoken, I, I don't know if I know the answer to this. What what appeals to you about tennis? <laughs> and it was a it was a long growth process for me because again, I grew up um, and it, I'm I'm of some age now, but I grew up in New York and just outside New York City. And for those who have known the famous film Caddyshack, I was Noonan. <laughs> I was a caddy growing up, and I was the caddy that was the nice, you know, wore the nice little uh, clean golf shirt, the Evan Scholar, blacks into the caddy yard, and I caddied for I think about seven summers. So I grew up around golf, and I knew golf. I had no exposure to tennis. I understood how to keep score and, and a few of the basic rules, but I was not exposed to the sport. So it happened to me when I was in my late 20s. And over time, and it took time because for the first decade or so uh, that I was involved in tennis, I, in essence, just did the U.S. Open. And I would do a few random events on the tour in the late 80s and early 90s when USA Network still was doing tour events. And these were in U.S. cities that are long, you know, Philadelphia and Chicago, and places that are long gone from the tour now. But, uh, but for the most part, I was just a, a parachute guy. I'd parachute in at the open. And then in the late 90s, some opportunities came up, and I started to do more. And what I eventually came to love about tennis now, to get directly to your question, John, was I grew up in New York, so understandably in my era, I was a huge boxing fan. And Muhammad Ali, like for most people my age, was a seminal figure. And what tennis became was boxing without the violence. It's one-on-one. It's mano-a-mano or womano-on-womano. But that's the, that was the part I love about it. And that's why I'm not the biggest fan of on-court coaching. It's not, um, you know, I, I, don't, I never liked Justine Ennen, for example, looking up after every point to get coached right. from the, from her box. I didn't, she was too good a player. She didn't need that. She was a great player. And that frustrated me too. So what I love about tennis is that I love the one-on-one. Um, it's why I don't, I don't appreciate doubles the way others do um, because it doesn't have that dynamic to me. Um, it's a great sport. I just don't have the appreciation for it. Um, and so that, that, part of tennis and everyone now lumps it under the one phrase problem solving and that's true that's right. what it is right and i love that um good answer like i i mean you know and i imagine uh it's, it's a much different sport to call but from the experience of, of watching an athlete self-correct and strategize on the fly and and yes it's become a cliche but i love it but but for problem solve that's a lot different than looking to the third base coach for whether to you know, steal second or not. Um, yeah. You are, uh, you're headed to Wimbledon in a few days. So am I. We'll I'm see going each other back there. with you, John. I yes, love so it. Welcome me back. You'll, uh, you'll be back in the, uh, in the pilot seat. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I'll tell you, John, real quickly, the last yeah. time I was there, and it's funny because uh, people forget this, the last time I was at Wimbledon, I did 12 years for NBC, which was an extraordinary honor. Um, and then I went back, the last time was the 2012 gold medal match. And oh, that's that right. Yeah, was yeah. such a difference because Murray beats Federer in right. the gold medal match. And what happens? They throw the flag down, the Union Jack flag. And he runs around center court with the flag draped around. That's right. And then he stands up on the podium to get his medal and they lift the flag and play the anthem. 
for the Olympics. We don't, we don't when get Murray that. wins Wimbledon, yeah. what happens? Yeah, exactly. No, you get a little you get a little plate with the royalty Sue, out Sue, there. Sue no. Barker comes on and you say a couple words, and uh, yeah, it's a good point. Um, such a na- that, that's the beauty of it. The, the true nationalist moment, as much as they made a big deal out of him being the first Brit to win Wimbledon, the true celebration of that was when he won the Olympic gold on center court. Which came before he won. That's good. Um, I, I always thought that uh, that match, God bless Andy Murray, but uh, Del Potro should have gotten like an eighth of that gold medal for having <laughs> yes. taken out uh, Federer's <laughs> legs in the, the previous round. Um, so Federer comes in as the defending champion. He is pushing 37 years old, hasn't played much, comes in now on a losing streak, but uh, he's still Roger Federer. Is he, uh, if, if Nadal on clay is the boring scenario, um, is, is Federer getting tested? Is he winning this thing? Or is he not going to be able to defend? What do you think? Yeah, you know, just watching the man, I actually was on an airplane yesterday and I got a chance to watch the George match. And, um, you know, it's kind of back to that, same thing you you think about Roger was you know not a lot of breaks of serve right how, you know how many tie breaks you know do you take a chance with you go way back to the 2007 final everyone you know remembers 2008 this one we're commemorating where Roger won both of his sets were tie break sets the 2007 final the first two sets he won were tie break sets from Rafa mm-hmm. he beat him 6-2 in the fifth but the two sets he won were tie break sets he didn't break Rafa serve a whole lot in that match either so that that would be one thing I would watch is Ken Roger you know continue when he's been at his best he was able to play that Sampras set where he'd win 6-4 right you know get to be four all then he'd break you yeah exactly and hold and, right. and win 6-4 right and that that was you know Pete perfected that so can Roger do that and not get stuck in a lot of tie breaks and and you know, risk having one or two points determine things. And obviously we're going to go in there with, I think, two curiosity factors. One will be Djokovic's rebound. It started a little bit in Paris, and now this past week um, at Queens, will Djokovic be able to play to a higher level? And then Rafa. I mean, this is a big curiosity question to me. Rafa, Rafa plays seven matches that we saw, John, in Paris with no tape on, no wrappings on his knees. And, you know, people looked at me, even my friend, Mr. McEnroe kind of looked at me a little crazily, but I'm not sure he looked a lot younger the way he was moving on the court. So, you know, no, very drama. You know, we, we, it hasn't happened in a long time for him at Wimbledon, but we know it can happen. So that's going to be the one to me that is the curiosity. And I'm just glad that, you know, even though the, the, the rankings, switched after uh, Fed loses the final in Hala, but right. still they're on opposite halves of the draw. That's the one good thing. So that if they do meet, it's going to be on Sunday. I suspect 10 years ago, when uh, you and I had the good fortune of being on hand for this uh, incredible final, neither of us would have predicted that uh, 10 years hence, these guys would still be batting back the number one ranking and uh, the, the two guys to beat, the two guys who've won each of the last six majors. Um, this, it, this rivalry's got some legs, doesn't it? Yeah, and John, look, here, here's two points to that, which I think you 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 hit it. I mean, gosh, when remember when you when we talked and you were writing the book about this, that's exactly what you thought was that this is the best it will ever be for these guys. They'll play again, but it'll never be like this. And here they are, ten years later, they go to Wimbledon holding the last six major championships between them. <laughs> that's insane. But here's one thing I will say, and this is something I pointed out during the French Open that I uh, I value. Um, is that Roger Federer 
played 65 consecutive major championships. 65. Now, if uh, Feliciano Lopez yeah, right. Feliciano, shows right. up for his first match at Wimbledon next week, he's going to break yeah. that record. But still, 65 straight. The most consecutive majors that Rafa Nadal has ever played is 13. Wow. That's stunning. Wow. And I hope Rafa can change that because he's on a good run right now. And I hope that he can change that because it's going to be, obviously, again, great for tennis to have a healthier, sturdier Nadal back because Roger is going to be 37 in a month. Rafa has hopefully some legs left in him and hopefully Djokovic. And you know, we'll see about Murray, but there's going to be young guys. And I think there's, you know, if there's a young guy I want to watch coming up next week, it's Shapovalov because I've heard people whose opinions I value um, tell me that that's the guy with the upside right now. Yeah, if you were yeah, going to exactly. pick one guy to buy future stock in, I mean, this is, again, from some people who really, again, I treasure their opinions. That's the guy they point to. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. But anyway, it's a, I, I think what we will do going to Wimbledon and 10 years from this great match, thankfully Nadal is going to be there and be healthy. And we can treasure the fact that these two guys are still there and that they are in opposite halves of the draw, and the only chance they can play is in the men's final on Sunday. It's a good way to look at it. Um, all right, this was uh, well well put. This was great. It's a good note to uh, to close on. I think we need to bring in Jamie Lasanti, but uh, that was great. I, I appreciate this, and uh, with any luck, two weeks from Sunday, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see who's in the final. John, if you bring Jamie in, make sure that you have a charcuterie board and a nice bottle of Bordeaux, because I know that's when you do your best work, okay? And, and Jamie doesn't eat carbs, so we're okay with that. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see you in a few days. Okay, thanks. I'll see you over there. All right, thanks to Ted for coming on. Always a pleasure talking with him again. Ted is one of the many voices in Strokes of Genius documentary that airs July 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern on Tennis Channel. That is the eve of Wimbledon talking Federer Nadal. Thanks, as always, to our super fantastic producer, Jamie Lasanti. Jamie, you know what? The kids want more Lasanti. That uh, comes up quite often. Ted Robinson requested more of you as well. Um, even if he hadn't, we will bring you in anyway. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. I'm recovering from a bit of a, a cold. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm doing is, well. Is this something hot and sour soup and... Uh, some vitamin C can take care of. Yes, that's what I've been on all weekend. What do you think of uh, what do you think of Ted's interview and recollections of that match? I love that. That was such a really it was such a cool conversation between you and him. Oh, thanks. The dynamic was cool, and you guys, you asked so many questions that I wanted to ask. So I love it when it works that way. Selfishly, that was really nice. That's coming on the heels of Nick Volatari. I'll have you do. <laughs> um, a little different, huh? He. He was just so interesting to hear about. Like obviously, like you said, he was there. I love to hear about the behind the scenes. Like he only had a two minute break, and you know how, what he did afterwards. Because I think those kind of things get lost in the shuffle, obviously, because of the grandeur of the occasion. So to hear kind of his personal stories was really cool. I think part of being a sports fan means thinking you can coach better than coaches who always make boneheaded decisions and always draft the wrong players and always squander their timeouts. And part of being a sports fan also means you think you can do TV, in particular play-by-play, uh, play, for sure, uh, better than anyone else. And I think you, you hear that story and you think you're, you're calling this match, you're on court level, you have John McEnroe on your side, which can be a virtue but also comes with its own set of challenges sometimes. Um, there's a lot going on there for 
the broadcaster as well. And you think about a game like that, and you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know when it's going to end. If Federer wins, what a remarkable story. He would have come back from two sets down, and he would have staved off Nadal and won his sixth straight Wimbledon. And if Nadal had won, which of course he did, it's a completely different storyline. Those two storylines are coming down to a couple of points, but it, you know, it's, it's a much different match to call depending on who wins. Um, a lot goes into that. I mean, that, that is not, uh, that's, that's not an easy job. And you can say, well, the, the, the piece of advice he got where you never go wrong with silence, but you, you got to say something. Right. Um, I think this is a great example of, of how the job of sports play-by-play caller is not uh, as easy as fans at home perhaps think. And and the rain delays added a whole another level exactly. to that, which he said he sort of had to fill the, the time uh, during that, just kind of being a talking head. But what's interesting is that I always think when you have rain delays and they kind of keep happening, and especially in a match like this, it kind of changes what people want to hear about because the match changes completely in that sense. You know, it becomes less about the stats and, and, you know, who's, who's doing this, uh, you know, the numbers wise, and you really just really want to hear about kind of like he was saying, what are people saying on court? How are the fans? How does it feel inside that stadium? You know, so I, I think that's always um, harder to do and it requires a little bit more on his part to, to listen and, and try and convey that. Um, so that was also interesting. It's a really good point. You also go into these matches, um, prepared for anything and some of that means you've got anecdotes and you've got stories and you think about how when this match goes to a fifth set all of these anecdotal vignettes that a broadcaster will have prepared are completely irrelevant as you say but I'm, I'm imagining I mean it would have be ridiculous that uh, you know four, four all in the fifth set of a Wimbledon final start talking about Nadal's famous pasta recipe that he made the night before but you're also armed for that and so much prep work goes into calling a game like this. 90% of it's cutting room floor stuff. So, um, you know, we were going to bring on Tim Henman. I, sh- I should say Tim Henman, uh, Ted and I did a, a, a conversation. Uh, we actually taped it during the French Open, but uh, on center court that's going to run in conjunction with Strokes of Genius. Tim was very generous and uh, offered to come on the podcast and talk Wimbledon, but uh, we got backed up with time, so we'll have to get a rain check on that one. A rain check on a covered roof. But um, why don't we do a little Wimbledon preview talk? Uh, We talked a little bit with Ted. Roger Federer comes in. He is the defending champion. Of course he is. But um, hasn't played a lot since March. Took the clay off again. And I I would say good, not great in the two grass court tune-ups. I don't know. It's sort of he lost to Tommy Haas last year, you'll remember. I mean, the sort of predictive value is, is, I, I think, limited. But he is coming in on a losing streak, which is a something that often happens to him at Wimbledon. Uh, do you like his chances to repeat? And if not, who's winning this thing? Yeah, I don't make much of that, of the lead-up loss. Um, kind of similar to Rafa, I feel like at this point, I mean, maybe a losing streak heading into Wimbledon isn't the greatest thing, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of shakes off the nerves a little bit. It will make him move on and kind of focus a little bit. And I, I just think the same, same deal here as as we did a few weeks ago, how can you pick against Federer on the grass at this point? Are you Ooh, with uh, me? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I, I think we said this at the French Open with Nadal, too. Remember, Nadal loses to Dominic Team in Madrid. Right. And, oh, alarm, it's, alarm. it's uh, exactly. It's two <laughs> years in a row. And I think I think part of it is there's just a huge difference between 
a best of three match and a best right. of five match. I wish Nadal's track record uh, at Wimbledon were stronger over the last five years. You know what's interesting about that is that Nadal actually seemed to do better going from clay to grass when there was only two weeks separating the two events and not three. He does not seem to be benefiting from that extra week. I think Djok- Djokovic is a, a player to watch, but I'm not sure, Jamie, which way that cuts. He's winning matches again. That's good to see. He's a player who, I mean, it would have been jarring to see him not among the 32 seeds, which was a real possibility this spring. That's that's not going to happen. But, you know, he, he has a match against Marin Cilic that he's holding match point and has every opportunity to win and doesn't close. Great that he gets to the final, but I got to think that there's some residue there. I got to think that in the, you know, sub-basement of his consciousness, at some point he's going to remember that this was a match a few years ago. He wins 95 times out of 100, and now he's having trouble closing. But on the flip side, that's an improvement. It's an improvement, so, exactly. I mean, we're in a much I better think... place than we were 60 days ago, but right. a- again, um, this is not... It's been a long decline, so I think it's going to be a long way back to the top. Um, well, but you, you, you do think so. You don't think he can just do the Pete Sampras and remember who I used to be win seven matches and suddenly all's right with the world. No, you, you think this is going to be a steady climb? Yeah, it just doesn't seem... There seems to be too many layers to like peel off or put back on, whichever way you want to look at it, that I don't think um, it's going to be a kind of snap out of it type thing. I think one match or one one title may like be the, the time that we look back on and say that was the moment that he really started to trend upwards, right? But I don't think it's going to be one match then all of a sudden like... We're back to Novak Djokovic of 2016. Hasn't won a title in more than a year now. Um, go figure. So uh, let's talk women real quick. Uh, Garbina Muguruza is our defending champion. Not necessarily a model of reliability. Um, she can play very well and tends to in majors when she's locked in. She can also play very not well. Simona Halep uh, gets the proverbial monkey off her back by winning the French Open, which uh, you have a feeling in her case in particular, this may really sort of cause her to reassess her place in the sport. Hey, listen, I can do this. Doubts are gone. I've proven to myself I can win seven matches. Now let's do do that a few more times. That think, was kind of fun. You think you think she'll do well in Wimbledon? I do. You know, I do. I think there's some players that win a major and just say, oh, my God, this was great. This was a career highlight, and uh, I can retire tomorrow. I, I think with Hollop, this really was galvanizing. And this doubt she had was very real. She was, I, I thought, incredibly candid talking about it. And now that she's proven to herself she's capable of this, I get the feeling it's, uh, I'm going to go back for some more. That was fine. I'm going back on the diving board and trying that uh, that double flip again. Um, Sloane Stevens comes in uh, a few games from having won her second major. And in, in theory, grass is a surface that ought to uh, play well to some of her core strengths. But I think, once again, you know, Serena Williams is a big X factor. Can't forget Kvitova. Can't forget Petra Kvitova, exactly. Two-time champion who won at Birmingham. She she won at Birmingham last year, though, and then... Yeah, I know. And I, I, we had a little bit of that going into the French Open as well. That right. She had a terrific spring on clay, and then she lost, um, I don't have it in front of me, Annette Contevit, I believe, in straight sets, close match, uh, middle weekend. It's, um, you know, I, to, to me, again, I say this again, I think... It's men's and women's tennis really complement each other quite well right now. And go go watch the Roger Rafa show as they try to win their seventh straight major. And the women's draw is a lot more intrigue. 
But um, I I don't know. I mean, if I, if you had to pick a, put you on the spot and uh, made you pick a women's winner right now, who would you go with? I'm not sure I'm on your side with Halep. I, not that I don't think she can, and I, I agree that I think she has a different mentality than other players that you know she won't just kind of like bask in this glory for that long. Um, but then again, it, with all of that weight lifted off her shoulders, sometimes it just your body shuts down. I, I, your body just needs a break, and maybe she doesn't have that fire that she needs to kind of get through, uh, especially on grass. So, you know, it's fine. I mean, we went from two weeks in between the French and Wimbledon to three, still in the grand scheme of things, not huge. And I, I think in some cases, that's great for players that do well, that they don't have time to like go on a bender. And Ostapenko is doing a couple of PR tours and renegotiating a racket deal. The next thing you know, I got to get on grass and start to play Wimbledon. It probably helped not to have some extra time. Uh, I think another case, and I think maybe this is true with Nadal, that just it takes a lot out of you to win a major. And then you sort of, now I got to go to grass and do this thing again? Um, I think Halep will be really interesting, though, because I do have the feeling that now the spigot has sort of been turned on and she's come close. And obviously there were, there were, you know, three finals that weren't successful prior to this one. Sometimes you have the feeling again, the players win one of these and it's career highlight time and whatever else I do, I'm now a grand slam champ. This seems to me like a case where now, uh, again, the spigot's been turned on. Um, she's your pick. She's my pick. I'll get back to you on mine. All right. I mean, so, you know, Serena's obviously, <laughs> we just don't know. And somebody said, well, she hasn't played between the French Open and Wimbledon. She hasn't played for a decade between the French Open and Wimbledon. So I wouldn't read too much into that. But, uh, again, I mean, she looked, she got better with literally in real time at the French Open and kind of had to had to grind through some early-round matches. And Ash Barty's a tough opponent. And by the time she won that third-round match against Julia Gurgis, you're like, this is a contender. This looks like the old Serena again. So, you don't um, think we'll see her playing doubles? I do not think we will see her playing doubles now um all right that uh that does it for this week this was a long one um again thanks to ted robinson thanks jamie as always we will uh we'll try to do a few of these from wimbledon what do you say give it a shot we'll give it a shot um great if not this is a very long it will last you for a little while there we go <laughs> we went extra long this time uh where can people find this uh podcast if they were so interested in subscribing itunes Stitcher, and they should also tune in and watch on july 1st Strokes of Genius. Oh, thanks. There you Sound go. like a real movie publicist there. <laughs> uh, Strokes of Genius is on Tennis Channel and BBC the night before Wimbledon. It is on Tennis Channel 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, I suspect it will re-air, but um, a, a Federer Nadal documentary that um, I think you don't objectively. Miss. Exactly. You don't want to miss it. All right. There you have it. Uh, have a good week, everyone. We will try and check in from SW19. Um See you in seven days.